Okay. How do you get out of Egypt? Very good. You don't. You don't. Hashem takes you out of Egypt. Okay. This is going to be the foundational principle we are going to be starting with. Pesach is about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it's about the exodus from Egypt. And the idea is that the Jewish people did not take them out of Egypt, themselves out of Egypt, Hashem took them out of Egypt. So, if we want to then understand what Mitzrayim, what Egypt is, and what it means to leave Egypt, one thing that we have to keep clear is that we do not leave Egypt ourselves, Hashem takes us out of Egypt. Which then leads to another important point. In order for Hashem to take us out of Egypt, what is required of us? So let's think about it. If somebody is trying to take you somewhere, where, what, what is required of you? Willingness. You have to be willingness, willing to follow, right? A willingness to follow. Does that make sense? Okay. And that willingness to follow Hashem out into the desert, the prophet, the Navi says that Hashem remembers um, how... how um, Wonderful we were when we were young, meaning we were young people, that what? That we followed Hashem out into the desert. Right? So that willingness to follow Hashem out of Egypt into the desert, right? that's what is required on our part. Right? So, let us, uh, let us imagine the following. Let's say we're sitting down at the Seder and you know, we somehow have enough time to actually have a conversation about something between all of the mitzvahs you have to do and keeping the children from turning, you know, all the food on its end. Um, and we start discussing what our personal Egypt is, our personal Mitzrayim. And we start strategizing how we're going to escape our personal Egypt. What have we failed to do? What? Well, if... If Hashem is the one who takes you out of Egypt and you can figure out how to get out of whatever this problem is, then is that your Egypt? Is that your Mitzrayim? No. no. Mitzrayim is the place you can't get out of, right? And Hashem needs to take you out. So Egypt is Gullus? Yeah. In fact, all, all Gullus all is really just a variation of Egypt. Okay? We're going to talk more about what Egypt is. We're going to talk more about what it means that Hashem takes out and what it means to follow Hashem. Be willing to follow Hashem. But it's very important, not every problem, whether it is a practical problem or an emotional problem, or in the case of Chassidus, right, an issue in our service of Hashem, a relationship with God, it can really be classified as a problem of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. Because Egypt is a place that Hashem takes us out of and we have to be willing to follow. Okay. So, and the last point that I'm going to make before we start fleshing everything out is before we left Egypt, Hashem did ask us a few things, and one of them, which was the only one we're going to focus on for today's class, is eating matzah. So given that what is needed for us to leave Egypt is a willingness to follow Hashem, we have to understand the role that matzah plays in enabling us to leave Egypt. So again, the points are, number one, Egypt is not a place that you take yourself out of, Hashem takes you out, which means... What's required on our part is that we follow Hashem. We have this willingness to follow. And point number three is that matzah is what enables us, what strengthens our ability to follow Hashem. 
Number two. Number two is that we have to be willing to follow Hashem out of Egypt. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt, is related to the same Hebrew word as Meitzar, which means a limitation. Okay, or constraint. Um, what is a constraint? A constraint is something that prevents you from uh, something, right? You know, if you're, if you're cons- a person is physically constrained, that means that their mobility, they can't move in certain ways, right? If a person is uh, emotionally constrained, they can't feel certain things, right? And so the idea is that Hashem takes us out of our constraints. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk about being constrained on a very, very lofty level first, and then we're going to talk about some other things. What constrains our service of God? Right? We're supposed to have a relationship with Hashem. We're, supposed to, we're here in this world to serve Him. What constrains our service of God? What is it that is a barrier that does not allow us to serve Hashem as we ought to? Anyone have an example of a constraint? Our egos. Our ego, yeah. Something else. Ego is boring. <laughs> cliche. Also cliche. We have something not cliche. Something original or interesting. How about our conception of what it means to serve Hashem? Like... We all have a sense of what we think it means to serve Hashem, what it means to be religious, what it means to be devout, what it means to, yeah? Okay. Does that constrain our service of Hashem? No, let's give you a very, very simple example. Um, if a person um, is convinced that Hashem wants them to be, take the most stringent view in halacha in every single matter, is that going to constrain their service of Hashem? Are they going to be able to know that sometimes Hashem wants them to adopt a lenient position about things? No. Why? Because they're convinced that the ideal service of Hashem is always being the most stringent. Or vice versa. What if a person's view is that you know, Hashem was always kind, Hashem always wants us to, to enjoy life, and so obviously Hashem prefers when we take the lenient position on every issue. Would they be able to realize that sometimes Hashem wants us to hold ourselves to a higher standard? No. The, the first constraint, okay, and in a certain sense, the main constraint is the assumption that we actually know what it means to serve Hashem. We actually know what Hashem wants from us. We actually know what this is all about. Does that make sense? No. Does that make sense? No, what does Hashem it. want from you? Do you know? To do Torah to do Torah mitzvahs. That's a good answer. What does it mean to do Torah mitzvahs? Practically. Are you supposed to, let's say for instance, spend more time in my note or less time in my note? You sure? How would you know? Are you supposed to be very, very strict with your kashras or a little more lenient with your kashras? Should you push yourself 
to um, grow in your midst observance quickly or should you allow yourself to take your time? Should you get married now, next year, two years from now? Do you know the answers to these questions? No, but do we live life as if we often think we know the answers to these questions? See what I'm saying? Like, right, now as we can move more theologically, right? Like, we're kind of forced to do that. That's right. That's right. Being in Egypt is not such an easy thing to get out of. That's kind of my point. You know, when I have a desire to do a sin and I know it's wrong and I don't do it, I mean, that's a, that, that takes effort and I have to overcome it, but like, I can do that. I don't need God to come down, you know, and, and, and take me out of Egypt. I can do that myself. Right? But then there are things like, like we talk like, for instance, what is it, what, what does it really mean that Hashem cares about us, that Hashem wants us to serve Him? Do, I mean, I might think I know what that means, but I really know what that means. Right? We are limited in our perspective. We're bound by our perspective. We're constrained by our perspective. Physically speaking, if you are standing, you know, in, by, by the ocean, by the desert, wherever it is, right, there's the horizon. Can you see beyond the horizon? No. Is there stuff beyond the horizon? Yes. You're constrained. You, you, like we, we, in other words, the, the, the first constraints are what's called in Chassidus Mitzrayim de Kedusha, the constraints of holiness. Where, because we're limited beings, our perspective on Hashem and on Torah and on mitzvahs and what everything is all about is limited. And so we put effort into succeeding in our limited conception of what we think service of Hashem is about. And we're blind to what Hashem really wants from us, what Hashem really demands from us, what we're really capable of. Now, if you go down a level, we can sometimes even become trapped into what's called Mitzrayim of Klippa, the Mitzrayim of unholiness, where we become trapped in an unholy perspective, in an unholy attitude. Okay? But even if a person is a complete Sabbath, they could still be stuck in Mitzrayim, they could still be stuck in Egypt. Why? Because at the end of the day, they're a limited being. They have a limited perspective. And Hashem is infinite. And Hashem, what Hashem wants is infinite. What Hashem has in mind is beyond what a person could figure out. Right. So if we had to give an analogy, what is the relationship of any Jew? Any Jew. I don't care whether we're talking about the lowest sinner or the greatest tzaddik. Whether we're talking about you know, a simple person who doesn't know anything or Moshe Rabbeinu. Any Jew... The relationship with Hashem is like a toddler compared to their parent. Do toddlers have a perspective on life? They do. I have, I have had seven toddlers so far. Toddlers have a perspective on life. But their perspective on life is the level of a toddler. Is a toddler capable of understanding what an adult understands about the world? appreciating how an adult navigates the world, appreciating why the adult does certain things, why the adult wants the, the toddler to do certain things. Like imagine, imagine, imagine your three-year-old, three-year-old, were to ask you um, why you have certain parental policies in the home. You know, why, for instance, why you, why you, um, 
you allow this child to do one thing and the other child to do something else, right? You know, different, every child is different, and so certain children are allowed to do certain things, other children are not. It's not always age dependent, right? It has to do with temperament and character and, and you know, all those kind of things. So your three year old asks you, right, why is, why is you know, this sibling able to do that and that sibling's not able to do that? How would you explain that to a three year old? What if your three-year-old asks you, um, why is it important to keep Shabbos? First up, can you imagine a three-year-old asking these questions? That's kind of my point. Even the question is so outside their worldview, right? Their worldview doesn't even operate on that level. They don't even have these kinds of questions. So it's not only that the three-year-old doesn't appreciate what the, what, what the parent sees and what the parent knows, it's the three-year-old doesn't even appreciate that they don't appreciate it. They're ignorant of their own ignorance, so to speak. What? It's not like a bad, like... It's not yeah, a bad it's, thing, it's just true. It's the way it is. This, this isn't framing the Torah as such a negative thing. Well, here's the thing. You ever had a three-year-old? Not your own, but like uh, siblings, yes. yes. Okay. Now, what happens if a three-year-old decides that they're going to do things their way? And they are not willing to follow any adult's guidance whatsoever. How does that work out? Not so great. Not so great. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty clear. It just doesn't work. Now, does the three-year-old need to understand the adult's perspective? No. But the three-year-old, if the, what you want from the three-year-old is that when the parent says, okay, now we're, gonna, now we're going to shul, or now it's Shabbos, or like now it's time to clean up, right? That the three-year-old is like, okay, now I'm going to do that. Do they understand the importance of having a life and organizing it and, 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 and making sure that things are put away? They don't necessarily get all of that stuff. In other words, I, I'll, I'll give you a little personal thing. My... Kids, I've noticed, pick up very quickly, um, usually by the age of two. They pick up the basic laws of muksa, Which means that on Shabbos, you can't touch certain things. You can't handle certain things. Okay? Now, one interesting law of muksa, um, there's a dispute about this, but the, the, this is the view of, of, of many halachic authorities, including the Alter Rebbe, is that the laws of muksa do not apply if you're handling something in a completely abnormal manner. So for instance, this glue stick is muksa, yes? So on Shabbos, I would not be able to do that, right? But can I do this? Is that permitted? No. So according to many authorities, including the altar, but yes, because this is not called handling an object. This is not nor right? the, the literal, but no one holds things with the back of their hand. Okay, so I've noticed that by age two or three, like when like they see something books on Shabbos, they just like go around picking it up like this. <laughs> and then, then they start to get this thing like, is it Shabbos? So is it Muksa today or is it not Muksa? Like, like there's, they have no understanding of like the legal principle behind like why, why this is not allowed and this is allowed or what makes Shabbos different than a weekday or why certain objects are Muksa or not Muksa. Like, not only does the two, three-year-old have no understanding of that, they don't really even have a curiosity about why that would be the case, right? But they do have a kind of a willingness to pick up on that that's the way it works, that's what you're supposed to do. How do they pick that up? Because they follow the example being set by the parents. Okay? 
How does a child ideally learn how to daven? Parents. Parents. Ideally, the way it works is like this. Is that when the child is capable of sitting for some amount of time in show, they go to the parents with the show, to the show, and they sit next to the parents. And then what happens? Parents stop it. And parents stop it. And then what happens? They pick up on it. The child starts imitating. And then the parent can give a little bit of feedback and guidance, right? Yeah. Does that mean the child has any sense of what it really is? Do they need to have that sense? No. no. Okay. Um, not yet. Not yet. Now, eventually they grow up. Okay. So, in other words, having a limited perspective is not a problem as long as you're not running your life based on your perspective. Do you know what's really frustrating as a parent? When a child, especially a little child, doesn't, isn't in that mood, isn't, isn't, isn't cooperative. So the parent says like, now it's time to go home. Now it's time to go to the park. I don't wanna go to the park. I don't wanna go home. I don't wanna go to the park. I don't want this. And like they're two or three, so it's not exactly you can reason with them. You can have a discussion about like why we should do this thing as opposed to that thing, right? Older kids you can do that with, and you should. But younger kids, and so then you're just like, it's very, it's, it's extremely frustrating. And what do you do at that point is a good question. So now, now imagine God, you know, creator of heaven and earth, almighty, transcends time and space. He says, look, I have this great idea. Let's go into the desert and I will give you the Torah. Now, what is the Torah? What is the Torah? The guidebook he gave us on how to... The guidebook on how to live life? It's the Torah. It's the Torah. What is the Torah? God's essence in the form that we can like hold on to. God's essence in the form we can hold on to. God's will and wisdom. God's something, right? Okay. You know why it's hard to answer what the Torah is? Because the Torah is God's and his perspective is far beyond us, right? So we latch on to the more relatable part of it or we end up with saying fancy slogan words without really knowing what they mean, right? Okay. So God comes to the Jewish people and says, I'm oversimplifying this, right? Why don't we go out into the desert and I'll give you this thing that you don't really understand what it is, but it's really, really important. Let me put this in slightly differently. Let's imagine that you're not religious, but you're like, you know, a Chabad house and whatever. And um, the the, Shlucha tells you, I have a great idea. You should drop your entire life and go to Israel for a year so that you can learn what Judaism really is. What is the like, automatic reaction to that? Okay. Of course! Is that the automatic reaction to that? No. Why? Why is that your, your reaction? It's just a very like, out-of-pocket thing to say for the... Like, it's out of your perspective, right? And with your limited perspective, like, how does that fit? Nowhere. Okay. Yeah. Now, let us let us contrast. Let us let us contrast with the following. Okay. Let us contrast with you have a three-year-old, and you tell the three-year-old, you wake up the three-year-old in the morning. He says, "Let's get up. We have to go. We're going to go get a passport." And the three-year-old's like, "Yeah, let's go." 
<laughs> Does Theo know what it means to go get a passport? No. Do they know what a passport is? No. Do they know why you need one? No. Does it matter? No. Why not? Because they're excited. Why are they excited? Because they're, they're with you. Because they're with you. Like, <laughs> if mommy's going and Tati's going and they're into it and they want me to come along, it's got to be good. <laughs> it's got to be good. Like you understand? Like that's a, it, this. There's a dynamic of being in Egypt, and the dynamic of being in Egypt is not I have a limited perspective, but my limited perspective constrain, constrains me. A child, when they're like, and, and by the way, this is a general rule, yeah, with little toddlers. If a toddler is not tired, is not hungry. Nobody recently did something to bother them, like took a toy away from them or something like that, right? Um, and there's no, there's no like, abuse or anything going on. What is the state of a toddler relative to the adults in their life? Whatever the adults are into, whatever the adults are excited about, wherever the adults want to go, the toddler follows. Right? Because although the toddler has a very limited perspective, they're not constrained by that perspective, interestingly enough, right? That's weird. My perspective is broader than the toddler's, right? But I'm in Mitzrayim because I'm constrained by my perspective. The toddler, again, barring these like technical issues, not really constrained by their perspective. Right? So notice, having a broader sense of things doesn't get you out of Mitzrayim. What gets you out of Mitzrayim is that it doesn't matter what your perspective, your understanding, your conception of things is, it's always going to be limited. And so the question is, does that constrain you? Or do you have this kind of sense of willingness to follow Hashem, a sense of attachment to Hashem that makes you thrilled to go where He's going, to do what He's doing, to be involved in what He's involved with, to follow Him out into the desert to go to Harsina. In other words, if I want to celebrate Pesach, I have to become a child. Right? Pesach's about telling the story to the children, right? So on a simple level, you tell it to your actual children. But on a deeper level, what has to happen? You have to go back to being a child yourself. Okay, in the, in the Haggadah, there are the four sons. You've heard of the four sons? Yes? Yeah. Okay. There's the wise son, there's the simple son, right? There's different sons. So the Rebbe makes a point in one discourse that if the wise son is wise, what makes you wise is that your, 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 your true wisdom comes through the study of Torah. And so the problem is, if you look at the wise son's question, what is, does anyone know what the wise son's question is? What? I don't know. The wise son's question is, what is the purpose of the Torah and mitzvahs? I'm oversimplifying it. What's the purpose of the Torah and mitzvahs? What are, what are these mitzvahs all about? Now, presumably, if he's a wise son and he's learned Torah, he should like, have a basic understanding of Judaism, yeah? So the Rebbe goes back and forth in the discourse over and over again. Well, maybe his question is this. Maybe his question is this. And he keeps in, saying, well, yeah, but if he's really wise, then he should know that too. And do you know what the Rebbe's conclusion at the end is? He's not really wise. Pesach is about being a child. And because he's so wise, he knows that as much as he knows... He has to really not be, like, he doesn't know anything. It's not that, he, it's not that he, he's, it's not he's asking because he has a specific question. He's asking because 
He knows that everything he knows is based on his limited perspective and the real truth is outside of his perspective. And he brought himself back to that, that instinctive loyalty and acceptance and devotion of a child to just ask, well, what are we doing? What's going on? The worst thing you can do for your Seder, by the way, from a, from a, from a uh, not a halachic perspective, but from like a being in seminary perspective, is come with a notebook full of all the things you learned and stuff you want to say at the table. <laughs> Do you know why? You're not open to hearing. It's not about milk. It's not about. It's about. That's not Pesach. Pesach is Hashem takes you out of Egypt. What, what, the whole Seder, we're trying to get to some kind of a place where, where we feel like a toddler relative to Hashem. And Hashem says, look, I've got this wonderful thing called Torah, mitzvahs, service of Hashem, being religious, bringing Mashiach. I'm like, well, if God's into it, it's got to be good. I mean, you know, where he goes, I'll go. Now, can you get yourself to that place when you feel like armed with all of your divrei Torah that you have learned and you're ready to go? <laughs> the wise son is the one who knows like, hey, hey I might have learned a lot, but... I, I have to start, I don't really, it's all new, from the beginning. Right? There's an interesting thing, the halacha says that if you don't have a child to ask the four questions, because you guys do that, there's supposed to be a question and answer form, right? So if you don't have a child to ask you the four questions, so you're supposed to answer, you're supposed to have someone else ask the four questions. What if you're doing a Seder by yourself? You ask I have, to, I have to say that. You're never really doing a Seder by yourself. Um, after the Rebbe's... After the Rebbe's mother-in-law passed away, the Rebbe did the Seder with just him and his wife. Um, but after the Rebbe's wife passed away, the Rebbe's passed away, the Rebbe did the Seder by himself. And there was a, 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 a difference. Like, he, when it was with his wife, so there was other people who would like, bring the food, and there was, some, there was a, 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 someone who would actually ask the four questions for them. But uh, when, after the Rebbe's wife passed away, the last, um, the last few years, the Rebbe had the Seder alone in his office. So they would just bring all the food for their and they would lock the door and do his own thing. Um, and I think the first year, I forgot who it was, but one of the families in Crown Heights, um, the mother felt this was like not good. That I was going to have this. That I was going to have Seder by himself. They made a Shabbos meal by himself, and so she sent one of her sons dollars to invite the Rebbe to their Seder. Oh my God. And um, that uh, the, the, the Rebbe shouldn't be alone. And the Rebbe smiled and said, "I'm never alone. Never alone." Jew is never alone, right? There's always, there's always someone else. But anyway, back to the... If you're doing the same with no other people in the room... Did he take the offer? No. Oh. If there's no other people in the room, then what do you do? You ask the four questions. Now, why would you ask the four questions if you're the one who's going to go answer them? Because you should still ask. Why? You're the youngest and the oldest in the Because the... Because the asking, the, the, the I'm a small child, that I don't really know, right? That there's a, there's a truth beyond me that I'm willing to accept and to follow and to take wherever, and, and, and to go wherever it leads me. Like, that's what you need to have in the Seder. Okay? In fact, in the Chabad custom, you may not know this, who asks the four questions in the Chabad custom? Everyone. Everyone. After the child asks the four questions... You know, and if you have enough, many children, they all want the privilege, so then you can have them all do it, right? But uh, then afterwards, the Chabad custom is that everyone asks the four questions. Now, an interesting um, Chabad custom is that when you ask the four questions, you start to introduce, you're supposed to introduce them with the phrase, Father, I have four questions. 
or in Yiddish, or in whatever language, it doesn't really matter. You can do it in Chinese if you want. Does what? it have to be in Yiddish? Or no, no, no. In fact, really the, really the idea is that it should be understood. So that's why the, doing the Yiddish comes from. But anyway, so, so the idea is that when everyone asks the questions themselves, they're also supposed to say Father. Why are they saying Father? Because who are they referring to? Who are they asking? <laughs> no, in other words, Pesach is very much going about getting back to this place. Right? It's very hard as an adult, as a sophisticated person, as a modern person who has a strong sense of their own individuality, as a successful person, as a person who's scholarly, to, to come to the realization that I'm like a baby. I'm a toddler in front of Hashem. And that the real foundation of everything is my willingness and my joy in following my Father in Heaven out into the wilderness, not really knowing what this is all about, because I believe in Him and I trust Him and I feel connected to Him. And that's enough for me. And wherever He leads me, that's where I want to be. It's not about having a bigger perspective. It's about not being constrained by your limited perspective. Now, if your limited perspective is even more limited, it has elements of evil and self-absorption and arrogance and, and, and negativity in it, okay, fine, also. But even if it's free of all of those things, it doesn't matter how holy and righteous and profound you are. The, the, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, in Haggadah, there's a line that we say that even if we were all Chachamim, we're all wise, we're all understanding, we all know the Torah, it would still be a mitzvah to tell over the story. And he said, so if you, those words are Chachma, Bina, and Das. If we've mastered all of the Hasidus, we're all, we still would have to tell over the story because telling over the story is about realizing that ultimately, ultimately, like we learned in Tanya recently, when it comes to Hashem, the only thing that we really have is our Amunah. And so, coming to the Seder prepared and armed and ready to go with all of the, the deep ideas. Now again, if you have to do a Seder for other people and you have to say things, that's one thing, but for ourselves, we're trying to realize that not just that our perspective is limited, but we don't have to be limited by it because we have this other ability, we have the other capacity to feel connected and trust and belief and a willingness to follow Hashem into the great unknown where He's going to take us. Now, I'm gonna stop here. Is this idea make sense? It resonates. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do have a question. Though. I don't know if this is just like a, I guess like a self-help slogan, but there is that idea though, like asking, like, what is your personal like Egypt? Like, how would you even? Like, with this idea, like, how would you address that? I, if you would like my ask my personal opinion, I think it's a silly question. So, like, if, like, asking, like, what are you struggling with, like... I think it's something that people do to make the Seder more appealing to their adult minds. I think getting caught up in the form of things is beside the point. That's not what it's about. And I think, in a certain sense, it's like, you say, it's like... How would you really be able to ascertain what your limit, what, what constrains your perspective? You don't see outside your own, you don't see it outside your own perspective. Is that the, you know, and, and so I think it, it's more of an existential thing, an existential realization. I am fundamentally limited by my experiences, by my being a reasoning human being, 
by the time and place where I live. And therefore, whatever I build off of that and my understanding of what it means to connect to Hashem is not the truth. It's not necessarily false and wrong, but it's not the truth. And therefore, I don't, I don't want to make that the basis of everything. I want to make the basis of something else. Like, the, the, like I want to get back to the place like a toddler has with a, with a parent that they're not constrained by their smallness. Now, part of that means accepting how small you are, right? Yeah. I think sometimes the talking about our problems and how we can deal with them and how we, like, part of that actually is like an unwillingness to be small. It's like, it's like, it's, it's sometimes a person gets a kind of a, of, a, of a superiority from having a problem mm-hmm. and having a perspective on how that problem should be dealt with. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Was the idea of taking personal responsibility and growing and working on things, and, and certainly there's a whole idea of tshuva, right? But notice tshuva is the other side of the year. Tshuva is Elul. You know, Elul is definitely a time to sit down and figure out what's not working and how you're going to fix it. Not how he now Hashem's going to fix it, how am I going to fix it? That's Elul. But I don't think Elul, you know, Elul in the middle of Pesach is not, you know, it's a little bit weird. There's, a, there's an assertion as a way of disregarding that... that Hashem is real, and he's, he's not me. He's really, really not me. He's really beyond me. Mm-hmm. Um, Chassidus actually says how, how Pesach and, and the whole El Tishrei are really opposites in that respect. That El and Tishrei is really about taking personal responsibility for your relationship with Hashem. That's what Shuvah is all about. Um, you know, I'll give you an example um, from Halacha. There, there are two people who have very similar experiences. One is what we call a baltruva, and the other is a convert. And their significance are very similar because both of them um, didn't keep tournaments, and now they do have to keep tournaments, right? Mm-hmm. But is it the same? What's the difference? Baltruva was born Jewish. And therefore. From a religious point of view, and I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. From a religious point of view, point of view a Baal has baggage. They engaged in things that went against Hashem. Now, maybe, okay, they didn't know better, or maybe they did know better, but like, it's a story, it's an issue, it's, it's something that has to be confronted, and it has to be dealt with, and it's a, it's a whole parsha, it's a whole, it's an issue. How to deal with it is not the point, right? But it's an issue. Okay. A convert, I mean, obviously, on a psychological level, everybody has the baggage of their past. But from a religious point of view, oh, imagine the following, yeah? Religiously speaking, a person is about to convert. They have their immersion in the mikvah scheduled for tomorrow. And they decide they're going to go do things that are forbidden according to the Torah. And things that are forbidden according to her in the manner of that they're, that they're Jewish-specific. There's the things the Torah prohibits um, because the Torah sees them as, as, as wrong on a human level. Okay? But let's say, for example, so they decide, you know what? I'm going to convert tomorrow. I'm going to go out for my last cheeseburger. Are they doing anything wrong? Anything wrong with that? Why? Why is nothing wrong with that? They're not Jewish. They're not Jewish. 
person is becoming religious, like, I'm going I'm to start keeping kosher. But I have to have one more cheeseburger before, before I can commit. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you can't empathize, I'm not saying you should judge them, but there's a, you can see that that's not 100%, right? There's something off with that. Again, it could be practically that, you know, because of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that shows that they're not serious about their conversion, but, but setting that aside. And, and so the way our sages put this in the Talmud is that a convert is like a newborn. They don't have a real past religiously. As a human being, they have a past, but as a religiously, they have no past. They're, they're starting now. About Tshuva has a past and is, has to deal with that past in some way, shape, or form. Okay. When Hashem took us out of Egypt, are we like converts or are we like Bali Tshuva? No, like converts. We're beginning something new. There is no past. The whole idea, and this is why, this is why the idea of Yitzhak that conversion is compared to being born, and Yitzhak is compared to being born. In fact, we don't need to go into the anatomy of it, um, but being born means going through a very, very constrained space. Yes? That's how it works? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is that when the Jews left Egypt, they did not have baggage. They did not have a, a past to deal with religiously. Right? By the way, when did they have a past that they had to start dealing with? Anyone know? After Specifically, the, the sin of the golden calf, the eagle, the 17th of Tammuz. By the way, if you count out from the 17th of Tammuz, um, Moshe goes up on the mountain and gets Hashem to not, to agree not to destroy the Jewish people. Then he goes back down, then he goes back up on the mountain and gets Hashem to accept the Jewish people again as his treasure people, give him the Torah again. If you count out the days, when does he come down with the seven tablets with full forgiveness of the Jewish people? Nine. What? Yom Kippur. Okay. So like, after the sin of the golden calf, there's the, you know, there's, there's the, there's, 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 you know, there's a process of, of sin and atonement and taking responsibility and forgiveness and like, okay, that's all, that's not Pesach. Pesach is, you're, 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 you're a newborn, you're a toddler, you're just, Hashem is beyond and he wants to take us somewhere. So I really do think that there's work for us to do in Pesach, but it's a very different dynamic. And I think that the more we're individuals and the more we're adults and the more we want to kind of have a mastery over where we're going and how we're doing, the harder Pesach is. Not necessarily like the eating matzah and drinking four cups of wine, but the the spiritual part of Pesach. Okay. Good? Yes. Okay, now. So... What does it mean to leave our Mitzrayim, our constraint? It doesn't mean that the constraint, it doesn't mean the limitation disappears. It means we're not limited by it. Right? What would the analogy of that be? That's like the child, right? Who's limited in their perspective, but their devotion, their attachment, their sense of belonging to the parent means that they're not limited by their own limited perspective. By the way, what is one of the most dangerous things you can do to a child? Give them autonomy. Yeah, but I mean, it's something more subtle. Give them a sense that you're not always there. That they can't really rely on you. You can't. Because they don't, their perspective is so small. So they, they're naturally looking to like, what are you into? What do you value? What do you care about? That's where I should go. 
Um, and then... Hashem does that to us. So Hasidus actually speaks about this that depends on the child. A child who's more shallow takes a physical absence as a sign of rejection. A child who's a little bit deeper... Like, uh, like, I'll just give you my three-year-old. Um, so my, my three-year-old knows that every day I leave and I go to a place called Yeshiva. What is Yeshiva? He has no idea. But what is Yeshiva? Where you go. It's the place where Tati goes. And so if Tati's going to Yeshiva, that's fine. Then, there's Shul. Shul is also a place where Tati goes. But Shul is a place that sometimes he comes with me, sometimes he doesn't. So now, if he wants to come with me to Shul, and I say that he can't come with me to Shul, then how does he feel? What? Like, that's hard, right? Why? Because it's not the physical absence, it's a kind of the way he relates to it. In other words, Yeshiva's a place Tati disappears to at all hours of the day and comes back late at night. And like, okay, that's, where, that's, that's the reality of my father. Right? Now, as, as a person gets a little bit more mature, they can start to understand that, like, you know, just because someone leaves you behind doesn't mean they're really leaving you behind. Okay? So there, there is a discussion about that in Hasidus. Okay? But... The grounding of that is that sense of attachment. The grounding of that is that sense of willingness to follow. Grounding is that, that, that sense that I'm not limited by my perspective because I'm, I'm, I'm bound up with, with my, my father and my mother and like, where they're going is good for me. What they're interested in. It's very childlike. So now, we have to talk about matzah, right? Matzah is supposed to help us have this kind of emuna. In fact, the Zohar says that matzah is called the, mil- the, 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 the bread of faith. The, the food that nourishes our immuno. Now, who said this? This says in the Zohar. It's elaborate on Chassidus. So, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain um, how matzah nourishes our sense of immuno. And again, immuno by immuno, I mean that sense of that accepting attachment, willingness to follow, that frees you, therefore, from the limitations of your own perspective. Food um, nourishes us, yes? That's a common observation. So Hasidus has a question that asks that food comes from a lower level in the person. Food is a plant or animal, usually. And the person is on a higher level. So how could it be that the food sustains the person? How could the thing which is lower enliven the thing which is higher? Have you heard this question before? Does the question make sense? Yeah? Can you repeat it? The food comes, comes from the plant or animal kingdom, and that's lower than the person. So how does the food... How does the food enliven the person? Thank you. Read the question. Does anyone know the answer to this question? 
How do we know the answer to this question? I'm trying to see how much chassidus of Pesach you guys have been exposed to. Very little, I see. Okay, so here's the thing. This question is really actually the way the question is often taught, but it's not really a good question. Um, or it's not, un- it's, not, it's not properly understood. I think, I were to ask you, right? If I don't eat food, what am I going to be missing? I'm going to be missing, let's be concrete, I'm going to be missing carbohydrates, which means I won't have the fuel to burn to keep my body energized, right? I'll be missing proteins, which means I won't have the building materials that my body needs to build new parts of itself, right? And I'm missing fat, which serves both roles, right? Plus I'm missing a bunch of other stuff called micronutrients, but we don't need to worry about that stuff, yeah? Is that like hard to understand? It's like if you don't put gas in the car, it won't go because the car goes by burning the gas. If you don't replace the brakes, the brake pads are going to have a problem because they wear out over time. What's so hard to understand that things need fuel and replacement parts? Isn't food just fuel and replacement parts? So where does it matter? Why does it matter that you got the fuel and replacement parts from plants and animals? Right? The gas is not as sophisticated as the car. It still powers the car. It's not such a hard thing to understand, right? I'm going to give you a slightly different analogy. Let us imagine that you would like to grow in your spiritual sensitivity. Okay? Say you are a student learning a Mayan note, interested in growing in Judaism, and you want to increase your spiritual sensitivity. And you have two options. This is a theoretical exercise. Option number one is that there is a very holy tzaddik and you could go travel and spend some time in that tzaddik's presence and see that tzaddik and observe how that tzaddik, that very righteous person, lives and be exposed to their holiness. Or the other thing is that you could spend an equal amount of time hanging out in a nightclub and you want to increase your spiritual sensitivity. Which place should you go? With the tzaddik. All right. That makes a lot of sense, right? Why? Because there's someone who's very sensitive spiritually. Okay. So what Hasidus is actually asking is a slightly different question. It says in the Talmud, and there's different, different, um, different um, stories to this effect, that eating food made the sages more spiritually sensitive. In other words... Do you know why I have such deep, profound insights into the depth of divine wisdom? It's because I had steak yesterday. Now, does that make a lot of sense? In other words, if I just think of eating food as fuel and spare parts for my body, it's not much of a question. But if I think of the food as something which is sensitizing me to spirituality, that's hard to understand, right? And so when Chassid is asked the question, how can the food enliven the person? Enliven doesn't mean power the body. Enliven means give you a sense of what life really is. So you imagine like you want to have a very meaningful davening, so you eat cheesecake first. Does that sound reasonable? To have a meaningful davening? No, really. How how does that that make any sense? What? I wonder. No, <laughs> now, it could be just a very technical bodily thing, right? Like you eat the food and you're in a better mood and you get a bit of a sugar rush, you're more positive. That's not... But like... Doesn't food come from a higher source? We're going to get to that in a second. Okay. The, the, 
you know, if you wanted to make your davening, your prayers more meaningful, what would you do beforehand? Would you... You would learn about God, think about... Right, do things that help spiritually sensitize you, right? Eating food, probably not that kind of a thing. So why does it have that effect if it, when it does? And the answer is because everything has a spiritual element to it and the spiritual source of food is higher than the spiritual source of our psyche. In other words, where is there more godly energy in the source of my psyche or the source of this coffee? In the coffee, the source of the coffee. So if I can tap into the spiritual source of the coffee, what is that going to do? It's going to make me more spiritual. I'm giving more sensitive. Does that make sense? What happens if when I drink the coffee, I'm not tapping into the spiritual source of the coffee. I'm just hung up on the coffee. Is that making me more spiritually sensitive? Right. So in other words, the idea, the idea here is, is that the food is actually on a lower level than the person, but the spiritual source of the food is on a higher level than the person. If you can somehow connect to the spiritual source of the food, what does it do? It makes you more spiritually sensitive. If you don't connect to the spiritual source of it, you connect to the food itself, then what does it do? It coarsens you. All right. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. No. Um, what? <laughs> she nods her head. Yes. You're like, no, no, no. no, no, no. Ridiculous. I'm just, how is, um, how is like, the spiritual source of food higher than a person? I didn't explain that. So that's not, it doesn't make sense. That's just, I, I didn't explain it. Okay. Are you going to? No. Because okay. <laughs> there's a limit to how many things you can explain in one class. I, I will. I, I not. I take that back. I will give you. I will give you a one sentence explanation and then move on. Which there is a principle in um, Jewish mysticism that th- higher things fall lower. So the things with a higher spiritual source, when they're manifest physically, are found in lower things. So, the food being a lower, more coarse kind of an existence than the psyche of a human being has a would indicate a higher spiritual source. But beyond that, I'm not going to go into it. But what that means is that if you can, if your eating of the food is tapping into the spiritual source of the food rather than the actual food, then... Okay, so now, i just briefly explain to you, what does it mean to um, tap into the spiritual source of the food rather than the actual food, rather, rather than the actual food itself? Um, you've ever heard of this thing called an educational video? You've, you've heard of these things, educational videos? Okay. Um, an educational video. As a student, would you rather have an educational video? Or would you just rather have the actual information just presented directly? Mm-hmm. What? Makes you feel good, you do less work. Okay. Can anyone give me a reason why they prefer the educational video without getting its, you know, it feels good and less work? Because you're more engaged. It helps you be more engaged. So you say this, I really want to understand this idea. When I sit in front of the textbook, my mind just goes, it's, it's too ephemeral and I don't get it, it's too confusing. When the video, the, 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 the audio-visual medium helps me engage with, with the ideas. Okay. But then there's a person who's like the other answer, which is like, I don't want to learn stuff, but watching videos is entertaining and fun. 
<laughs> right? When the teacher, the teacher says, do you guys want to have a lesson or watch a video, right? And most of the students basically have a video, not because like, well, that'll help us engage with the learning in a more tangible way. It's because we don't want to learn anything. Okay? So, since I don't have the ability to, so, so now, so since I don't have the ability to connect the spiritual source of the food in its spiritual realm, I, I have a choice. I can, I, can, I can connect to it through the food or not. But now here's the thing. Do I want the food or do I want the food simply because the food is my only conduit to the spiritual source? Well, so that's the difference between... So now, now, now let's think about it. Now let's imagine, if you have an educational video, if you have an educational video, right? And you're interested in educational video because it helps make the idea clear. That's why you want to watch it, right? Do you want a minimum of special effects and fluff or a maximum of that? A minimum. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. What's the goal? The goal is I really want to learn this thing, right? But it's very, very hard to follow. So I wanted a video. Video makes it easier to follow. Okay. But okay, but I'm not saying more or less. I'm saying a minimum or maximum. In other words, would I like? Would I like it there to be all things being equal? If I could get away with less, or I want, or are we going to have more? Well, think about it. The more other stuff is floating around, the more distracting it is, the harder it is to pick things up, right? So you want it, you want a minimum. Now, you don't want, you don't want to fall below a certain minimum because then you're not going to get it, right? Yeah. If it's too dry or too boring, it's not work. But you want it to be basically as dry and as boring as possible that's still engaging. But if I'm not interested in the actual educational information, I'm just interested in like having time off and doing something entertaining, then the more, you know, special effects and fluffy stuff there is, the better. Does it make sense? Okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a thing in Chabad, um, which is people like to do the Seder, all sorts of little things in the Seder, the way they ever did it. Like little, just like little practical customs things. So uh, a few years ago during COVID, someone put out a, a video of showing how the Rebbe did it. How did the Rebbe hold the matzah? How did the Rebbe do the egg? Like all the different things. And so um, I, I showed it to my kids and it was very interesting. The kids who were like really interested in knowing how the Rebbe did the Seder found it very engaging. It wasn't like, it was a video, but it wasn't like, it wasn't flash. It was just like saying like, now we're doing the matzah this way, doing the matzah that way. And it had, it was, it was, it was done for, it was done for older children. So it wasn't dry and boring, but you know, there was, no, there was nothing exciting and dramatic happening, right? So it was very interesting. Like the older kids were like, this is really interesting. And the younger kids after two months said, this is boring, nothing happens. <laughs> like, like there needs to be more stuff. <laughs> right? And the truth is, the reason why is because they weren't interested in really knowing this. Right? They just wanted something. So there's this way of relating to the food. Am I interested in like my, my spiritual sensitivity and therefore like the food is just the means to that? Or am I interested in the food? The food has become a primary thing. And, and so Chazal speaks about this, and this is a complicated thing. The point that to come away from this is that the food actually contains an ability to sensitize you to higher spiritual levels. Okay? But normally, in order to tap into that, you have to do a lot of work because what happens? The food gets in the way. However, there is sometimes where the, the food doesn't get in the way. And when is that? When the eating... So bad. When the eating... No, when the eating... <laughs> That's another distraction. No, when the eating is a mitzvah. Mm. Is it a mitzvah to eat matzah? 
the night of Pesach, the mitzvah to eat matzah. Yeah. And so when it's a mitzvah to eat matzah, the matzah spiritually sensitizes you automatically. In other words, like this, if I want my coffee to spiritually sensitize me, it depends on my relationship to the drinking of the coffee. And let's be honest, I'm not drinking the coffee with much eye towards its spiritual source. But what about matzah? Matzah doesn't depend on me, right? God himself has decreed that I should eat matzah, and so the matzah, the eating, in other words, when, when the eating is a mitzvah, it spiritually sensitizes you automatically. Does that mean at the moment you eat the matzah, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I become more spiritually sensitive? Is that how that works? No. Um, I, the analogy I like to use for this is, um, if you exercise regularly, will you be healthier? Mm-hmm. Will you feel after exercising, oh, I feel healthier? Yeah. That's generally not how it works. You might, you might, it might, what? What? feel healthier. You, you, you might, you might, if you're really, really unhealthy and you do an appropriate amount of exercise for the first time in a while, right? Right? And then there are people who are also, by nature, very sensitive. No, right? But it's just not necessarily true that just because a person exercises right afterwards, they feel, I feel healthier. Some people exercise and they feel, I just feel tired and like achy and I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> Some people feel that way. If, it varies, right? Does that make sense? Okay. You eat matzah, it spiritually sensitizes you. But there's many things you can be sensitive to. Matzah specifically sensitizes you to what? To this childlike sense of attachment to Hashem. This amuna, this, this trust. Okay. Why? Well, there are many, many aspects of it. I'm going to focus on just matzah itself. What is the key idea of matzah is that it does not rise. Anyone hear baked bread? Okay, what is the purpose of having the dough rise? Leavening process. Yeast. It's not the purpose. So the bread isn't dense. You have what to eat? Okay, what? You have what to eat. No, you have what to eat already. Flour, water, you have what to eat. So one thing it does is it makes the bread, it makes the bread fluffy, fluffy. right? Less dense. Why is that important? Enjoy. What? It's a heart. Mm-hmm. No, you can it's make. You can. It's just a more pleasurable experience to eat bread when it's. It'll rise when it's fluffy and higher volume of food. No, it's an actually higher volume. It'll rise, no. But why? It's actually easier to digest. It really is. It's it's easier on your body to you know. Your body doesn't do well with, with, with just baked dough on its own. Um, eat a lot of matzah over Pesach and see, see if you can understand what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, the other thing, see, so, so by, making it, by, making it, by making it bigger and fluffier, your body has an easier time handling it. Mm-hmm. And it also affects the taste. How does matzah made? What? How is matzah made? The way matzah is made is you take flour and water and you bake it before it rises. That's it. So there's no yeast? Oh, no, there's no, no yeast. The yeast makes it Right. There's natural yeast in the flour. That's why you have to bake it quickly. And you have to knead it. You're not allowed to let the, the dough sit. So the rule with making matzah is that you either have to be kneading or working the dough or it has to be in the oven baking. You can't just sit there. 
Because if it sits there, it's going to start rising. And what does rising do? It makes it bigger, right? Which makes it easier to absorb. And it also makes it tastier, which makes it more pleasurable to eat. But they didn't have yeast back then. How did they make challah? Look at they made, I know they made like, they made matzah, but like, how did they make the other bread rise? They've had yeast. They didn't have powdered yeast, but yeah, there was yeast. Yes, you've heard of sourdough bread? All bread was sourdough bread until very recently. Really? Use natural yeast. By the way, completely parenthetical. You know what life was like back in the day? Laundry. Every, every article of clothing had to be washed by hand down by the well or the river. Every, everything, all the bread was sourdough bread. For those of you who don't know, sourdough bread is a long process to make, right? Floors were made of dirt. <laughs> life was different, okay? Aren't you glad we don't live in those times? Yeah. We have instant coffee. Okay. Um, so... Here's the thing. The spiritual source of wheat, and don't ask me why this is, I could tell you, but it doesn't matter. The spiritual source of wheat is knowledge, awareness. A bread? Yes, yes. In other words, wheat, what does wheat make you stronger in? In the realm of Wisdom of Chachmah. Yeah. Wheat, grain in general. Not wheat specifically. Grain in general. The spiritual source of grain is Chachmah. So that means if you eat grain and you connect to its spiritual source, you should become more spiritually aware. You should sense it, right? Okay. Now, here's the thing about matzah, though. In matzah, how do you eat, how do you eat it? Not grain. It's, well, the proper way of eating grain is made into bread. We eat, it, we eat it without rising. What's the emphasis on not rising? It doesn't, it doesn't become bigger and fluffier and it doesn't, ta- and doesn't enhance the taste. In other words, like this. When you learn something in Hasidus, for example, what does that do to your awareness of Judaism? <laughs> does it make it more expansive and richer and broader? What? <laughs> When you learn something that says it make it bigger, richer, and broader, yes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> this is like sperm stuff. Okay. It becomes richer and more appealing, right? It's like the dough when it rises. It's easier to digest. It's more enjoyable, right? And now you feel like you can connect more to Judaism and get more involved. I read your Shalchonis things. Actually, my wife read them. Oh. She read them. I listened. I do know how to read English, but... I'm quite an avid reader, actually. No, when, whenever I get these things, I save them until, until my wife can read, can read them together. So she read it out loud. Um, but anyway, so there's a lot of very nice things you said, right? Um, it's all chametz. It's fluffy. 
it's it not fluffy in the sense of in the sense of, of uh, but in the sense of taking something about our awareness of Hashem and making it broader and making it richer and making it more enjoyable and then we can absorb it better and we connect to it more. One second, one second. Is that getting you out of Mitzrayim? The, the thing that is from Islam is just a simple awareness. This is my God. I want to go where he's going. Anything more sophisticated and developed compromises that. So the spiritual source of matzah is not just an awareness, a wisdom, an insight into God, but specifically a matzah-like thing, a thing which cannot have any, it can't be broad, it can't, it can't be... Developed, it can't, it can't be tasty. Again, like that. So eating matzah helps strengthen our sense of Hashem that is matzah-like. The chametz that we want to get rid of is all of the, the sophistication and the depth and the nuance that we bring to our Judaism. Are those bad things in and of themselves? No, but if that becomes the base of everything, we're constrained. Now, it's an interesting thing. Um, is it a mitzvah to eat chametz? Yes. It's a mitzvah to eat chametz? No. <laughs> no. I mean, okay, fine. But in general, is there, a mitzvah, is there such a mitzvah to eat chametz? Uh, on, on, on Shabbos, yes. No. Oh. There's no mitzvah to eat chametz on Shabbos. There is a mitzvah. There is a mitzvah to eat chametz on Shavuos in the temple. In the temple, there was a special offering that was brought that had to be chametz and was eaten by the Kohanim, and it had to be chametz. Now, if chametz is such a bad thing, why is it a mitzvah on Shavuos? And the answer is it's not a bad thing. It's just a bad thing when it's the foundation of your relationship with Hashem. If the foundation of my relationship with Hashem is how rich and meaningful I understand and I appreciate things, right? right? The, my awareness of Hashem, right, which is the spiritual source of the grain, is developed and is matured and has taste and complexity. It's not a bad thing. It's just a bad thing if that is the is if that's the 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 basis of my connection to Hashem. And so Pesach, which is the beginning of our relationship with Hashem, right? We're forbidden to eat matzah. And we eat, or we're forbidden to chametz. We eat matzah, and it's a mitzvah to eat matzah. So that even regardless of your intent, that spiritual source gets strengthened through the eating of matzah. But then eventually you come to Mount Sinai, right on Shavuos. Are you supposed to have chametz? Are you supposed to have a mature and grow and deeper understanding, something that resonates and something that speaks to you again? And then next year again, you repeat the process. So like the awareness of Hashem and like, um, like that's the, like, that's like challah, right? So awareness of Hashem could be matzah oh. or it could be chametz. On Pesach, if your awareness of Hashem is like chametz, it's bad. But on Shavuos, it's actually extremely good. Right. Again, think about it like this. Is it good that I have a mature, sophisticated, nuanced appreciation of Torah and mitzvahs and their place in my life? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it's bad if that ends up constraining my attachment to Hashem. And so the beginning of our relationship can't be that. Right. Now, this is... the whole, Now... If that's, if that's what we're dealing with, then the whole question of my evil inclination, my bad habits, and all these other types of things, they follow from being constrained. But the essence of being constrained is this idea. 
But I, I, I have it all figured out. I think I appreciate it. I think I know what it means to be a Jew, what it means Torah, what it means God. That's the real Mitzrayim. And then from that falls into more and more crass and disturbing Mitzrayim's ultimately ego and Yitzhara and all these other types of stuff. And so getting out of Egypt has to come from that willingness to follow Hashem. And that willingness to follow Hashem needs to be strong, needs to be strengthened. And what strengthens it is the matzah. Now, when did Hashem take us out of Egypt? There's actually two stages, by the way. Midnight and midday. I don't want to get into it. Midnight, we left Egypt spiritually, and then physically, we left Egypt midday. When is the mitzvah of eating matzah? Before midnight. So that when you get to the midnight, you are so ready to follow. Spiritually, you're, it's in the day. So spiritually, we left Egypt at midnight. Physically, they left Egypt midday, 12 hours later. Is it because of the darkness plague or no? No, the darkness plague was much earlier. Okay. The simple reason is that we shouldn't be that we're sneaking out in the middle of the night. Because that's not true freedom. Um, there's deeper spiritual reasons as well. Okay. So let's, 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 let's go all the way back to the beginning. What does it mean, Mitzrayim, limitations, constraints? The constraint is something I'm really limited by. If I'm really limited by, I can't get out of it. What is the primary constraint? Is my limited conception of the truth of what it means to be a Jew, serve Hashem, who Hashem is. And I can't really get out of that. But I can be willing to follow Hashem who is beyond that, just like the child is willing to follow their parent and it feels attached to that parent. But to do that, I have to feel that strength of attachment, that strength of belief, that strength of connection. And what is it that does that? That's eating matzah. Because everything has a spiritual source that spiritually empowers the person if they tap into it. But when it's a mitzvah, then it's going to empower them regardless of their, their mindset. And matzah, being grain, grain is about awareness of Hashem. And matzah specifically is that grain just as is, the dough as is, without the being developed through the leavening process of being fluffier and easier to digest and tastier and more enjoyable to ingest. It's, it's just that awareness as is, like the awareness of a child. This is my, it, it barely even they can articulate to themselves, but they feel it. This is my father, this is my mother. And where they are, I want to be. What they're into, I want to be into. What they feel is right and wrong is right and wrong. And that's kind of that, feeling towards Hashem, then we're out of Egypt. And now since we're out of Egypt, then we have to grow, and we have to grow eventually to get to a point where we eat chametz, right? Where, where our knowledge of Hashem and awareness of Hashem is rich and meaningful and personalized and sophisticated and mature, etc., etc., etc. Yeah? So, if, like if we're going with this idea that like chametz is easier to digest, and that's like the deeper part of the Torah, um, but matzah is harder to digest. How, like, is it that we're, we should just accept the fact that, like, like, I'm, I'm not fully following the whole... Well, because if something is easier to digest, it fits more into me. Mm-hmm. The, the beautiful thing about a child is a child has this innate sense that it's not little children, like really little children, like toddlers. They don't have a sense that things, the reality is supposed to fit into their conceptions. They have the opposite sense. Mm-hmm. Like, something switches... Right, when you start hitting puberty, and it's, it's gradual, but like at some point your parents realize that like, <laughs> I have seven children, so it's, it's interesting when, when the child, you see this, like I'm not gonna, my oldest for sure does, my youngest for sure doesn't, but some of them do, some of them don't. At some point, like you see that the child has gotten the sense that like, you know, 
that's my parents' opinion. It doesn't have to be, you know, the truth of the real reality. Not because I want something different. Not because they're like, you know, my parents said no and I wanted to play this game. Not that kind of stuff. But like, like more fundamentally. Like they start to feel like, well, you have your mind and I have my mind. It's very uncomfortable once you've experienced that to try to go back to that childlike place. But it's necessary. Especially with Hashem. But for children, that, like little, little children, that's like the natural place. Like, little children, it's very hard when you ask them. Um, like, if you, take a, if you take a two or three-year-old, yeah, or four-year-old, and you ask them their opinion about something, not like, do you want this candy, not want this candy. After it is clear what you think, they have a very hard time like, like having independent thought. And it's not because they agree with you. That's not the thing. It's just like there's no notion of agreeing or disagreeing. It's like, that's yeah. um, Sometimes they want to be cute and they'll say the otherwise, but you can see the smile on their face that they know they're being cute. And then, but like teenagers, it's not like that. Like they really they think like, yeah, that's your opinion. And I think you're wrong. And like that's the end of it. So, so there is a discomfort of trying to get back to it because it, 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 we have to stop seeing ourselves as so you know, sophisticated. <laughs> So knowledgeable. I, I make this interesting observation. Little children, you walk down, you, you, they ask you questions all the time about, about the world and about reality and just what is. And like they, they have no expectation they have any a sense of how everything really works. But something happens between the age of two and the age of, we'll say, argument's sake, we'll say like 16. Like most 16 year olds feel like they're entitled to have an opinion about everything in the universe. <laughs> right? Now, you can grow in wisdom and realize that you don't know everything, you only know a few select things, but that's not, that's not Pesach. Pesach is going back to realizing, actually, you really still are just like the two-year-old. Um, it's not a, like a, this, this is not like a deep, sophisticated, Kabbalistic idea. You could use a lot of deep, sophisticated Kabbalah understanding. But this is, you want to like Hasidus on Pesach in a very like grounded, fundamental way. This is, this is what it is, and it, you know, in a certain sense, the less you feel like you know what's going on, the easier it is to have Pesach. So essentially, we should just like accept the fact that like we just don't know and like just like accept that. And you know, part of cleaning and searching for chametz, one way of understanding that spiritually is realizing how much that notion that I have it figured out and my perspective on things really is the key to the truth of things is how, how, how much it penetrates and permeates us in subtle ways we don't even realize. And really seeking that out and letting go of that before we begin Pesach. It gets really hard to, 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 to come to some kind of acceptance that my sense of things is really, my understanding of things, my perception of things is really, really fundamentally limited such that it's, it's basically insignificant compared to the truth of Hashem. And then to have Pesach after that kind of acceptance and realization and to eat the matzah and to have that sense of attachment and willingness to follow. And, and that comes with a joy, right? A child who feels that joyously follows their parents to who knows where because they don't know where they're going, right? They can tell you the words, but they don't know what it means. Make sense? So, um, yeah. 
And if you do this, you will find that battling the evil inclination is a lot easier because you're not, you're, not even, you're, you're like almost above that whole issue. The evil inclination really has a handle on us when we start to feel like we know what's going on and we're entitled and we sense of things. And bottom line is, should you learn a lot of stuff before Pesach about Pesach and the Seder? Yes. Absolutely. Should you come with a notebook to the Seder? It's like, I have my different door. Now, you, if you are going to someone's house, just as a practical thing, if you're going to someone's house for the Seder, you should have something to say out of respect for your host that is short, that if they ask you to say something, you can say something that is short and nice and meaningful. And if they don't ask you to say anything, that you're perfectly comfortable not saying anything. It's just, in general, you go to someone's house for showers. It's like a good idea to... It's part of respecting the host if you, you know, that if they, if they want you to share a, a, a thought. And short is important because nobody signed up to hear an hour and a half lecture. I mean, here you did, did, but like, like at, at a Shabbos table, nobody did. I'm sure you've all been at a table where someone decides to say 25 minutes of our Torah and you're like, I do not, I do not agree to this. So yeah, as a, as a matter of like social courtesy and decency, yes, you should have something to say. And, 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 you know, if you're leading a Seder, that means spiritual responsibility on you or things like that. But, but for our own, between us and God, we want to, like, approach Pesach, you know, for what it really is. All right, have a wonderful Shabbos. I will see you next week. After Pesach. Um, if everyone...